Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Vanity Fair. Amanda, when I called you last night to ask how you've been feeling about this uh, IVF controversy in Alabama, uh, you said you were really angry. How are you feeling today? Just as pissed off as I was yesterday, and I will continue to be as outraged until something changes. Um, You know, I hear these interviews with politicians in Texas and Alabama and Tennessee and, you know, similar states where it's become very clear that they don't even have any idea what they're talking about. They've never been through IVF. They don't understand how it works, yet they're getting in the way of my family planning journey, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Who are they to tell me what I can and can't do when they don't even understand the science? That's Amanda Zaroski. She's the lead plaintiff in a Texas lawsuit that challenges the vague wording of the medical exception in the state's abortion bans. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. Today, we are going inside the fight for reproductive rights in America. It is one of the main campaign issues in 2024. Right now, there are a lot of stories about Alabama and IVF because the Alabama Supreme Court recently ruled that frozen embryos should be treated as children under the law. Some IVF clinics have paused their work trying to help families grow as a result of the ruling. As you're going to hear, this is personal for a lot of people, including Zorowski, who was denied abortion care during a pregnancy emergency and nearly died in 2022. Now, she says she is moving her frozen embryos out of the state of Texas. Also, joining us later in this episode is Leanne Caldwell, a reporter at the Washington Post and co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. We're going to discuss what the IVF news means for the GOP and the future of reproductive rights. But first, let's hear from Amanda about how she's become an activist on this issue and even shared a stage with President Biden. You referred to your family planning journey. That's the kind of euphemism I I was, you know, using for years when my wife and I were doing IVF and we were trying to have our kids. Tell us where your family planning journey began. Well, it is such a journey because there are so many ups and so many downs, highs and lows. There's good news followed immediately by devastating news. I mean, it is a roller coaster. And to have these laws add additional layers of complication and confusion is just so maddening. Um, Ours started several years ago with um, realizing that we were struggling with infertility. Um, I did some fertility treatments and was able to get pregnant through insemination, IUI, um, which by the way is different from IVF. Nikki Haley may or may not understand that. Um, We had a great first trimester, but unfortunately I lost the baby at 18 weeks Mm. and um, 
was denied an abortion that I needed in order to prevent uh, getting really sick. And so as a result, I did get really sick, spent about a week in the hospital. And this was all in 2022? Yes, 2022. Why is that timing so critical? It comes down literally to the day because the trigger ban in Texas went into effect on August 21st and my water broke on August 23rd. And this is all a direct result of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Texas then puts this ban into place and suddenly your health is at risk. Exactly. So because the state of Texas and any state was given free reign to pass these insane laws, you know, long story short, my life was at risk and now my fertility is forever compromised. Right. All of a sudden, because of the trigger law, these doctors told you they couldn't help you. That basically only when you were considered sick enough that your life was at risk that they would terminate the pregnancy. Is that right? That's exactly right. So we, you went home and you just, you waited to become sick enough? We waited for one of two things to happen. We waited for me to become sick enough that I was on death's door and then doctors could intervene or we were waiting for the baby's heart to stop beating. So I'm stuck in this hell for three days of, you know, waiting for either my baby to die or for me to almost die or both at the same time. Jesus. And I can't believe I'm about to say these words, but you couldn't flee Texas. You couldn't go to another state because you didn't know if like by the time you got to another state that would perform an abortion, you might be so sick you couldn't travel. Yeah. Exactly. We were told by multiple physicians not to be farther than 15 minutes from a hospital. Mm. And think about what would have happened if we had tried to flee the state and I had gone into septic shock on an airplane or in the middle of the West Texas desert. I mean, I would have died. So eventually, after several days, you were sick enough that the doctors went ahead and used that medical exception in the Texas law in order to perform an abortion. And can we Stay on that for one minute, even though I know it's hard to revisit the trauma of this. But to have to undergo an abortion, this is, this is the worst possible outcome. It's not something you wanted to have happen. That baby was more wanted than you could ever imagine. Well, you can imagine because you know what it's like. But, you know, this is a baby that we had tried for years to conceive and we had undergone grueling treatment to get her. And yeah, yeah, it was the most horrific experience of my life. The rhetoric around pro-choice, pro-life, all of the phrases that get tossed around, it just feels that the rhetoric is so divorced from the reality of what goes on inside the hospital, what goes on inside the room, what goes on inside the womb. It's become, it's become so politicized and so stigmatized that most people fail to see abortion for what it is, which is healthcare. That's all it is, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. So you were able to recover uh, from sepsis, but you suffered scarring from the infection, which makes it harder to have a, a child in the future. So that was 2022. What was 2023 like for you? It was attempting to rebuild my body um, so that we could even do IVF because yes, the scarring was so extensive that when I went in to get imaging taken, so my doctors could understand like the landscape of what they were working with, the scarring was so severe that the images couldn't even capture any soft tissue. It was just scarring on the screen. That's all they could see. So my doctor had to go in surgically to remove all of the scar tissue, which he did almost completely successfully. One of my fallopian tubes is still permanently closed. 
Um, but also my uterus had collapsed as a result of the trauma and the infection. Mm. And so he had to surgically rebuild my uterus. Um, so that took a long time. And then finally we were at a point where we could start IVF and we did three egg retrievals. And the third one, finally, we got some, some viable embryos that are genetically tested. Um, but again, that's something I'd like to highlight. If you haven't been through IVF, if you don't have experience with it, you don't know how difficult it is. And three months might not sound like a long time, but it is so stressful. There's so much anxiety. It's painful. It's difficult on your hormones, on your mood, on your body. It's very isolating. It's lonely. I mean, thank goodness that it exists and it's an option for people like me, but it's terrible. It is terrible. All the injections, all the appointments, all the uncertainty. Um, listening to you, I was thinking about something my wife wrote in an essay about this years ago. She said, after my fifth miscarriage, it took me more than four months for me to get my period again. Do you know how many times in four months, let alone four days, four hours even, a woman who wants to be pregnant counts the moments until she could possibly be pregnant again? I mean, that's that's what I remember having gone through this years ago with IVF. It, it takes so much time. The clock is always ticking. And it sounds like that's what you were feeling last year as you were trying uh, to to come up with a viable embryo. Yep. I was, as a matter of fact, I was still in the ICU. Um, you know, to your, to your wife's point, I was still in the ICU and I asked how long until we can start trying again. I mean, right. when you're in that world, you are so desperately wanting children. And I think honestly, that's what keeps you going through it because it's so hard to do, but you want a baby. And so you'll do anything. And that's why we're keeping our embryos safe by getting them out of Texas. Yes. That's the the headline this week. That's what uh, caused me to reach out to you for this podcast. Uh, you said in an interview on MSNBC that because of the uncertainty about IVF, you've decided your, your embryos are not safe in the state where you live. That must've been, I, I can't fathom what that must've felt like for you. Well, you know, I saw an interview with Greg Abbott and the reporter asked him, do Texans need to be worried about the safety of their frozen embryos? And his immediate response should have been, no, they don't need to worry. We're going to protect IVF. No problem. Nope. Never said no. He stumbled around the answer. He danced around what exactly his opinion is, what his stance is. All he said is Texas is a pro-life state, which by the way, I've talked about this a lot, but whose life? Because not my life, not the life of my future children that I now have to use IVF to to hopefully have. So, you know, we we don't feel like they're safe. We don't feel like IVF is protected. And we made the immediate decision to get our embryos out of here, which it's a difficult decision, but at the same time, it's not because the alternative reality could be a lot worse, right? And so we mm. made the decision, we're sending them somewhere else, but it adds another layer of complication, another layer of anxiety because things could go wrong in the transport process. It's costing us thousands of dollars. And, you know, again, it's just, I feel like now I have no control over this next step of my family planning journey, I have no control and it's been stripped away from me because of fear from what my government will do. You said earlier, you're pissed off. I'm not trying to make you more pissed off. 
but I do want to play what Abbott said because it, it, it does need to be unpacked. Here, here's that clip from CNN's State of the Union with Dana Bash last weekend. Are you saying that families in Texas who are using IVF have extra embryo, embryos that are frozen, do not need to worry? Well, so you raise fact questions uh, that, that are complex that I simply don't know the answer to. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples, and that is, uh, I have no idea mathematically the, the, the number of frozen embryos. Is it, is it one, 10, 100, 1,000? Uh, things like that matter. So, Amanda, let me get this straight. Your governor does not have the answers to these questions about the future of embryos like yours. How, how can he not have an answer to those basic questions? Well, and furthermore, he doesn't have the answers, yet he feels he has the authority and the the expertise to make the decision for me, because that's what that's what happened in Alabama. And I think that's probably what we're going to see in other states like Texas. Let me fit in a quick break here and then we'll get back to Amanda's story in just a minute. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, talking about the intersection of the political and the personal when it comes to abortion bans in states like Texas. And these abortion bans, let's talk about the context for them. You know, there's a debate. I've seen it referred to as a fetal personhood debate. Can can you explain that to us? What does that mean? Yeah, so they are saying that frozen embryos are children, essentially. They are people. And so let me just throw out a couple thoughts that have run through my mind in the last couple of days as somebody who currently has frozen embryos and people who don't have frozen embryos would probably never think these things. First of all, okay, if they're children, can I now start um, deducting them on my taxes? And if I'm going to transport them to another state, is that human trafficking? If my surrogate gets pregnant with one of my embryos and then she miscarries, is that wrongful death? Like, Can they enforce all of these things now? It's crazy. Mm. So this IVF angle has been getting a lot of attention in the past couple of weeks. But your lawsuit, you as the lead plaintiff in this suit, uh, that's been going on for a while. Tell us about how you became the lead plaintiff and why you're taking the stand. Well, I'm taking the stand because even when I was still in the hospital, my husband and I were like, we have to do something about this. This is this is wrong like I am the best case scenario in this situation in that I didn't die and that I had all of the resources that I needed to survive, not only sepsis, but, you know, everything that happened after. Um, I, I think a lot about the families or the pregnant people in Texas who don't have healthcare or they don't live near a hospital or they don't have a partner that can get them to the hospital in a matter of minutes, or they oh. have other children that they need to arrange childcare for when they're in the middle of a septic shock. Like, what's going to happen to those people? I think we know. Um, Amanda, when you say we think we know, you mean 
they're going to die. Yeah. If my husband couldn't have gotten me to the hospital fast enough, I would have died. Sorry, I'm like, I'm just a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit speechless. So did you go looking for a lawyer? Did lawyers go finding you? It was kind of a little bit of both. So we started speaking out publicly about our experience, essentially because we wanted to warn people in Texas, like this is, this is what's at stake. This is what could happen to you. You need to have a plan. If you find yourself pregnant, you need to understand what your options are in the event that, you know, you have a similar tragedy as, as what we had. And so through our early activism and, you know, talking to people and entering this world of advocacy, people kept asking us, are you going to sue? Are you going to sue? And I kind of blew it off. I was like, that's crazy. Like, how do you sue a state? You can't do that. But then uh, we were connected to our our legal team at the Center for Reproductive Rights. um, And it was love at first sight. And we were just like, yep, we're doing this. This is this is our (laughs) thing now. Hmm. And as the center says on its website, this case, your case, is the first lawsuit brought on behalf of women denied abortions since the U.S. Supreme Court eliminated that constitutional right uh, back in 2022. So Texas now has three state laws banning abortion. Uh, You're going after them. What's the status of your suit? So currently it's sitting with the Texas Supreme Court. Um, They heard our arguments in November. regarding the appeal that the state filed after we won in July. And so we are just waiting patiently, as patiently (laughs) as we can, for the Texas Supreme Court to make a decision. When you look at the laws that have been passed, it's my impression that some of them are deliberately vague, that they are putting doctors into positions that are excruciating, having to make decisions about whether to provide health care, whether to provide abortions, Uh, thinking about liability, thinking about jail time, all of this based on really vague, unclear, sometimes contradictory language. Is is that your impression? Do you think that's intentional? Is that on purpose? Absolutely. And even the state's quote-unquote witness, um, expert witness, uh, whose name is Dr. Scott, she even said in her testimony and in her cross-examination that the laws are very unclear and that her fellow doctors in her practice don't really know what they can and can't do. I think that's so important to understand. And for people who haven't seen it, there's a brand new piece out from ProPublica all about what it's like for these doctors in states like Texas and Tennessee and elsewhere. These doctors, they don't know what to do, right? They're, they're caught between their patients' needs and these vague laws. The laws are written to intimidate and to confuse. And we see it. All over. And we know that prior to passing these laws, doctors went to Texas lawmakers and said, you can't do this. If you do, this is what's going to happen. We know this happened. We know they were warned. And yet they wrote these laws this way anyway. And I think they're really trying to intimidate just like they are with some of these bills that they're proposing in West Texas and in North Texas saying you can't use a Texas road to leave the state to get an abortion. I mean, that's just fear-mongering and that's intimidation. Mm. That's how they're trying to control us. So is that ultimately what you think it's all about? Is it about control? Is it about patriarchy? Is it about this religious fanaticism? What, What do you describe it? How do you describe it? I can't begin to imagine what goes on in these people's brains, but I can tell you that I do think it's about control because look look at my situation right on the one hand they're telling me i can't get an abortion unless i almost die because they're pro life 
right? But then on the other hand, I need IVF to help create a family and they are very likely going to do something that stipulates or restricts the way in which I can do that. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth here and Mm. I fall into both categories and in both scenarios, they're telling me that I can't do what I want to do. That's why this is a freedom issue. And that's why we're hearing Democrats use the word freedom more and more on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, these Republicans, I I just get the sense that some of them, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I get the sense some of them just don't know anything about the health care they're trying to restrict. So you've seen what's happened in the past week or so, all these Republican politicians rushing to support IVF, to say that they believe in IVF, and yet they don't seem to have clear answers to the obvious follow-up questions. I mean, Abbott's the perfect example of this. Uh, So do you believe these Republican lawmakers who say they are going to protect your rights? I don't know why I would believe them. They have failed to protect my rights over and over again. And what's more, let's not forget the fact that they're refusing to acknowledge that the reason IVF is threatened is because Roe v. Wade was overturned and states now have the ability to pass these insanely restrictive laws. Mm. Right. So I'll be candid. I I have uh, frozen embryos. Uh, They've been on ice or I guess it's probably not ice. I don't know how it works, to be honest. Um, But, you know, every year we get a bill. uh, we, We pay for our frozen embryos. And whenever I pay that bill, I think to myself, I'm paying for hope. You know what I mean, Amanda? I I don't think we'll have more kids. We're really happy with two kids. Um, But there's a part of me that likes the hope, likes the dream that maybe one day, somehow, maybe with a surrogate, I don't know. And I don't know, that word hope is what registers with me as, as we're talking. That people want the hope about children in the future, about carrying life forward. And that's what's at stake here. Going forward for you, you and your husband would need to use a surrogate, right? Yep. We were advised very early on that I shouldn't even try to carry again. Um, In part because of the scarring, the fallopian tube. And there's another reason why not is because the condition that I have that caused me to lose the first pregnancy, because it happened to me once, it's more likely to happen again. And as long as the laws in Texas stayed the same, who's to say that I wouldn't have the exact same scenario, except maybe next time I'm not as lucky. Mm. So is there a fear that surrogacy will also be imperiled um, by these, uh, you know, what I view as extremists? Yeah, I'm terrified. I think, you know, with this ruling in Alabama and what could happen in, in additional states, it's really scary to me because the slope here is so slippery and it's so steep and we don't know what they're going to come for next. I mean, I have my suspicions, but you know, they've already talked about contraception. Um, Who's to say that they're not going to outlaw surrogacy? I mean, there are Republican lawmakers who have already said that they think it's wrong. And so certainly to see that on the chopping block would not surprise me. And it's terrifying. Mm, I saw a headline. Because then I don't have any options. I saw a headline on Aaron Rupar's subsack this week. It said, they're coming for birth control next. He, he said, banning IVF is the natural result of anti-choice zealots running the GOP, and they won't stop there. Now, I, I know the pushback we would get from some on the right. They would say, that's that's nonsense. Those are just fringe politicians. Those are fringe, those are fringe views in the party. But it does feel as if there's this effort to enforce one very uh, narrow form of family Right. I mean, is that what you see? That's certainly what I see. There is one kind of family that is uh, 
that is uh, okay to some, at least some of these Republican lawmakers. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's certainly how it feels. And, you know, I, I question a lot how they would feel if they were in a position similar to me. If IVF was their only option, would they still have these opinions? But again, they have no experience with it, yet they still feel qualified to be able to make these decisions for me. Mm. But so you were awaiting a ruling from Republican justices. There's obviously a lot of ways this could go. What's the best possible result from the lawsuit? What, what are you hoping to accomplish with it? What we're asking in the suit is very, very simple, and it's very, very basic. It is literally the bare minimum. We are asking for the court to clarify the language in the law to more clearly define what constitutes a medical exception. Hmm. And the fact that it's taking them this long to say whether or not they're going to do that is insane because we're literally asking for the bare minimum. I've seen on your Instagram, you've, you've met President Biden, you know, you've, you've been at all these major events. What's been the most surreal moment or the most surreal part of this? Oh, wow. I feel like the last year and a half of my life has just been one surreal experience after another. Um, but I'd say one probably that's very recent that just really blew me away um, was attending the rally in Virginia for President Biden and Vice President Harris um, and their reelection campaign. You know, they are really making reproductive rights a pillar of their campaign. And it's awesome to see. I love it. Um, and they had me come out um, and I spoke on stage and the vice president introduced me and then I got to talk a little bit and then I got to introduce the president. Um, so that was pretty wild. Uh, you know, just one of the greatest honors of my life, but also just so heartening and so exciting to see how much attention and how much weight the, the Biden-Harris campaign is putting behind these issues. Amanda, thank you for opening up about your own experiences here. And since we were talking about President Biden there and the Democrats, let's look at the political state of play around abortion, IVF, pregnancy, reproductive rights. After the break, Leanne Caldwell of The Washington Post. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. We're back now on Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter. I want to bring in Leanne Caldwell, reporter at The Washington Post and co-author of the Early 202 Newsletter, to look at the political state of play on the subject of abortion and IVF. 
So, Leanne, you're joining me from Capitol Hill. Is it fair to say that the Democrats, including President Biden, want to talk about this topic and Republicans uh, basically don't? Democrats absolutely want to talk about this topic. They think that this is just another example of Republicans trying to take away a woman's right to choose, reproductive rights, access. Um, They think that this is political gold. Uh, They saw how effective the issue of abortion was in the 2022 midterm elections after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And Democrats have been warning that it's not just abortion that uh, some conservatives are going after, that it will go after contraception and IVF. And so to Democrats, this IVF case is an example of, I told you so, vote for us. Mm. Right. Your piece for The Washington Post earlier this week was titled Republicans Complicated Relationship with IVF. Why does it have to be complicated? Because of pressure from the religious right? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's also a lot of misunderstanding and not really knowing what IVF is from a lot of these older male members of Congress and people in politics. Are you Um, talking about Senator Tommy (laughs) Tuberville? We have to play that clip when he was asked about IVF. Uh, Here's what he said to reporters. Do you have a reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on the fact that embryos are children? Yeah, I was all for it. Uh, you know, you just got to look at everything going on in the country. It's a, just attack on families, attack on kids. You know, anything that we can do for the future of our young people because they're our number one commodity. We need to have more kids. We need to have an opportunity to do that. And this, I thought this was the right thing to do. But IVF is used to have more children. And right now, IVF services are paused at some of the clinics in Alabama. Aren't you concerned that this could impact people who are trying to have kids? Well, that's for that's for another conversation. I think the big thing is right now you protect, you go back to the situation and, and try to work it out to where it's best for everybody. I mean, it, it, that's what that's what the whole abortion issue is about. So but this really isn't about abortion. It's about no, no, I, no. IVF and the concern that now but families it, might not have access to it. But it's about the same direction. But I agree. But people need to have access. People need to have We need more kids. We need the people to to have the opportunity to have kids. You know, I'd have to look at the entire bill of how it's written. I have not seen it. Supreme Court decision. Well, I know that, but I'd have to look. I haven't looked at it, but this is state but issue. Women aren't going to be able to have IVF treatments already in some places. Yeah, that's unfortunate. What do you say to them? Unfortunate. So he did follow up later and tried to clean up some of that, right? So I talked to Tommy Tuberville uh, this week when the first day they were back in Washington since that court case decision. And he did not want to talk. But the good thing about Tommy Tuberville is he usually always talks anyway. And he told me he's done <laughs> his research. He did his research since he was, quote, lambasted by the uh, the response he gave to the reporter. And uh, he says that um, he supports IVF. He fully supports IVF now. Uh, so he and every other Republican has gotten literally the memo that the Republican campaign committee sent to all Republicans to say, say you support IVF, uh, they have gotten that. But beyond that simple statement of I support IVF, I support more access to being able to have children, that's where it gets really complicated, Brian. Mm. So so when you ask those follow-up questions, that's when you don't get detailed answers. That's exactly. So, for example, 
Uh, you support IVF. Great. So what should you do with the frozen embryos that aren't used, um, that are still being frozen and saved? Should those be destroyed? Or should there be a number, a limit, a cap on the number of embryos that uh, can be used in each IVF procedure? And Republicans have no answers for that. And obviously, those are Mm. instrumental questions that are part of IVF. And that is exactly the heart of the Alabama court cases. If you think that embryos are children, then what do you do with the ones that don't actually become human beings? And that's where Republicans have no answers. And they say that the state legislatures, the states should decide. I was so struck by this tweet by NBC's Sahil Kapoor. He said, I've never seen a party so scared of the consequences of its own actions. Republicans fought tooth and nail for two generations to nuke federal abortion rights. Donald Trump finished the job, paving the way for the bans, restrictions, and IVF changes that he and others are now running from. Is that an accurate assessment of the political dynamic here? I mean, you pointed out in your piece that, uh, you know, IVF is more often used by college-educated women, which is a voter demographic the Republicans believe they need in 2024. Absolutely. I think that they were so eyes on the prize that they didn't understand the political consequences. And to be fair, the political consequences weren't clear before Roe was overturned. Before. It was Republicans who were animated on the issue and Democrats weren't animated on the issue because the right existed. It was esoteric then. But now that that right has been taken away, it has completely blindsided Republicans. And I think it's even surprised Democrats at the power of this issue across the country and across the political spectrum. Mm. Every year, there are bills introduced on Capitol Hill involving abortion rights uh, and involving reproductive health care. Are those bills now being used against these lawmakers in a new way, meaning some of these Republican lawmakers have come out saying they support IVF, but in the past they had voted for bills that could undermine IVF? Yes, absolutely. So in 2021, there was a bill in the House of Representatives that a personhood bill that at the moment of conception the embryo is a person. And 166 Republicans, nearly two-thirds of the conference, signed on to that, um, thinking that that was good politics then. And it was Mm. at the time. But now, after Roe v. Wade, they did this bill again last year. The number decreased to 125, still a lot, but less than 166. And all of the Republicans who are in swing districts dropped off the bill. They didn't sign on. So interesting. It is definitely a political liability for Republicans. And the party has no answer on it. They don't have a party wide position on abortion. Uh, They have surface level support for IVF. Um, They say that contraception should be protected, but they didn't support legislation to protect contraception access federally. So it's, you know, there is a record. Yeah, it is Trump's party now. And Trump has talked about making a deal, so to speak, on this topic. Uh, Wasn't there a report recently that he privately supports a 16-week abortion ban? Yeah, there was. And uh, 
that he liked the number 16 because it's an even number, which is totally an on even brand. even number, yes. That's Donald what the, the New York Times reported. He likes the even number. He yes. also, by the way, the, the report was that he supports a ban with three exceptions uh, in case of rape or incest or save the life of the mother. Here, here's where I think this, this conversation just falls apart, though. This, this is so complicated. This is about healthcare, doctor's choices, patient's choices. All of it is so dynamic. And when it gets discussed by these politicians, you know, they just they throw out a number because it's an even number and it reduces a really complex issue to something that's, you know, they, they think is simple. Yeah, it's a really good way to put it. And what's interesting is that when it becomes a number, it's still for many voters, it seems, is still a number of defining when a person has access to make a decision for themselves and when they don't. Mm. When abortion was legal around the country, uh, Republicans had a really effective argument that they used to use uh, that Democrats supported abortion until birth, right? We know that there that, that's not really a thing. It's not a reality-based argument. It's, no, it's leaning it's on not. the most extreme, you know, idea. No, nobody wants to abort at, you know, in the ninth, ninth month. Come no. On. And now, though, Republicans are still trying to make that same baseless argument, but it's not sticking and it's not landing because Republicans have not come up with a position that supports access to abortion at whatever number. There is an interesting element here. For example, when I was speaking to Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas, who is an OBGYN, um, he told me that IVF, getting back to IVF, is a miracle. And I asked him those follow-up questions about the frozen embryos and what to do. And he said, the great thing about Dobbs is that it returns these issues to we the people. And I said, well, meaning the state legislature? And he said, yes, it should be up to the states. And I said, well, what about we, the people, the mom and the doctor and the family and the parent? And they think that it should just be governed and dictated at a more local governmental level, Mm -hmm. um, but still government involvement. Well, there is no doubt. This is an incredibly salient and personal topic heading into the election this year. Leanne, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Amanda Zorowski as well. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. We had engineering assistance today from Gabe Caroga and mixing by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter, or feel free to reach out to me directly at bstelter at gmail.com. I love hearing from you about the show. We will be back in your podcast feed next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.